Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to another episode of the Muslims in Your Backyard podcast. I'm your host, as always, Haram Shamim. Thank you guys for joining me for another episode of this podcast. I'm excited to be doing this podcast episode because this will be part two of the Babri Masjid episode that I did previously. So if you haven't already seen it, uh, I would suggest, if you want to at least, to review or at least listen to the part one episode uh, which was the previous episode that I released on Babri Masjid. And I guess you don't really have to uh, listen to the first one, but I mean, I guess it would make more sense if you listen to the first one and then you listen to the second one. But regardless, however you choose to or whatever you choose to do, I'm just glad that you're here to listen to the podcast. Uh, as always, I appreciate your guys' support, um, and I hope that you guys did enjoy the last podcast episode uh, in which I mainly focused on two primary things, which was the actual history of Babri Masjid, and then also the sort of reasoning behind why Babri Masjid was actually destroyed in the first place. And of course, those are two very important points, and I went into some main uh, conceptual ideas as to why it happened in terms of the history of the land, uh, the idea of many Hindu Vada or Hindu radicals as to what Babri Masjid uh, was allegedly, at least, of course, like I mentioned in the last episode, uh, and I go into more detail, of course, in the last episode, that there was no actual historical or archaeological evidence that even proved remotely that a temple even stood on the land at one point, even, you know, I guess, in relative proof or, or anything like that, really, uh, that there ever was a temple that stood on the land that Babri Masjid then inhabited back then. And so the reason that I, I guess, you know, I, I want to sort of recap this is to just sort of keep the flow of, of the episode. Uh, so just to go over some main points that I went over last time uh, as sort of a reminder in case you sort of listen to these two episodes uh, in a gap, uh, the history of Babri Masjid is, of course, something that wasn't really that relevant. In fact, compared to some other mosques in Indian history or even South Asian history, more specifically, Babri Masjid was sort of just a masjid. It didn't really have any sort of iconic things that happened near it. Uh, it didn't really have anything that was, you know, I, I guess, uh, of, of, I guess, importance, you could say, that happened near it or on it even, or even within its vicinity. It, it, again, it sort of just was a mosque that existed for a lot of its period of time. The unfortunate thing, of course, in its history is that the thing that makes it iconic is the fact that it gets destroyed by Hindu radicals and that it's allegedly, again, built on the land where the Hindu god Ram was allegedly born. Uh, and then the claims for Hindus, or at least I should say Hindu radicals, that go behind the idea that the mosque was built on top of uh, where Ram was born is dubious for two main reasons. Uh, number one, uh, because within Hindu texts themselves, there is no clear answer as to whether or not Ram was actually born on that one piece of land, because some give very conflicting answers or possibilities as to where Ram was actually born, which of course makes it much more, I guess, uh, you know, conflicting as to why this one piece of land that again just happens to be where a mosque was built or was on is the land that they choose as the place where Ram was born. And then on the other hand, the reason why it is dubious is because, again, like I mentioned before, there was no historical evidence that was found that actually connected the birthplace of Ram or even a temple to honor Ram in relation to the construction of Babri Mosque, which in general is not able to prove that the actual Muslims who originally built the mosque, which were the Mughals themselves under Babur, the first emperor of the Mughal emperor, or the Mughal empire, I should say, that they had any sort of idea or even any sort of connotation that they were going to destroy a temple and build a mosque. And so essentially, the claims were dubious, they were not, they weren't even proven, and many of the, I guess, the ideas that go behind it really do link right back to just a strong form of Islamophobia and just hate towards Muslims. And so from that short recap, I hope to move to the second part of the Babri Masjid episode. And that is to now focus on 
two things. The first is the lasting impact of the riot, which is hopefully going to be the main part of this episode, and sort of I'll hope to go into some really uh, crucial components and lasting effects that have really sort of had a shockwave effect throughout not just Indian society, but more specifically Indian Muslims that live within the country. And then from there, uh, and it will obviously be sort of a negative, um, I guess, point you want to say uh, about what happened in Babri Mosque, I want to then focus on the story of one man who, in a sense, actually gained or benefited or actually brought good from the destruction of Babri Masjid. And I know that that sounds like a weird explanation, and you're probably wondering what that even means. Why am I describing it like that? I'll get into it in the second part. So wait till I get into that. And when I do get into it, you'll understand what I meant by he benefited and others benefited around him as well. Now, obviously, in actually analyzing the impacts of Babri Masjid's destruction, uh, I can't get into all of them, again, because there were probably so many minor little details, and I, I don't want to get too much into that as well, right? Because if I did that, then this episode would take hours to just complete. But I do feel that there are some very important parts uh, that led to, or, or sorry, that uh, are a result of Babri Moss' destruction that really do need to be highlighted. And I hope to get into some of them and I hope to at least spend some time discussing them because some of them are very interesting to look into and really speak a lot about what's happened in India since the actual destruction of the mosque and just how many things you can connect right back to the mosque because it is almost shocking to a degree how many things relate back to the destruction of this mosque. Now, I think the first and foremost you know, impact from the riot has been just the destruction of the masjid and the actual public injustice that this was. And, and I think that word right there, public, uh, meaning something not hidden or in secret, is really key here because the destruction of the mosque was done while everyone, you know, the people, the media, and the police watched, right? They essentially just watched it happen. They all stood there and watched as the mosque was destroyed bit by bit. And yet, even though this was all happening, you know, no one with authority, mainly the police, actually were able to stop it or really did anything to stop it from happening. You know, there seemingly was no police response. The police were allegedly overrun. And to that, I would say, well, why not call in backup and stop what was happening? You know, there's almost maybe this perception that, well, it's already happening. We can't stop it. You know, or they didn't want to get into a fight with the protesters, which, I, again, I don't know if that's a justifiable excuse for the police. You're the police, right? You're supposed to protect people. You're supposed to uphold the law. You're not just supposed to violate or allow it to be violated. If you're going to allow it to be violated, then are you really the police? No, you're not. But obviously, at the same time, it is, again, more complicated because these were pretty, you know, intense rioters. But again, you are the police. Your job is to protect people. And I think that an important part of this is that in a country where, you know, you have a, a, such a vibrant amount of different religions, right? India has a lot of different religions within its borders. It is a big deal when one religion can just go after another and destroy a religious place like this and essentially have no repercussions while it's happening. You know, what's almost absurd is that you can actually find video of Indian media channels showing the live destruction. Like, it's like everyone in the country was watching it happen and didn't do anything about it. Now, obviously, you know, the average citizen may not be able to stop them. But if you're a police officer in another area, or if you're, a, a, you know, a lawmaker in another area, more specifically, you know, you're a politician, whatever, how do you watch that and not do anything about it? How do you watch that and say, yeah, there's nothing wrong with this, right? Like, th there's some major issues with that. And, and I think that that public display right, the public elimination of a mosque, it, it just sends shockwaves. And, and I'll get into this later as well, but it obviously emboldens a lot of Hindu extremists to think this way. They think that it's okay to do this. While on the other hand, right, that the public display of this, it, it really is, a, you know, a, just, it, it's a mockery of the law. It's a mockery of, I, I guess, justice in general. 
And, and it's almost interesting to watch this, right? Because this is one of those events uh, similar to something like, you know, 9-11, where you're probably watching it thinking, wow, that just happened, right? It's, you're just sitting there watching as this monumental moment in history happens. You know, and, and in India, they were just basically sitting there watching, you know, and, and I'm sure there were some people that tried to stop it. But again, what can they do when the law does nothing about it? What are you supposed to do as an average citizen? There's only so much you can do. And I think that that's an unfortunate part of it. But the public destruction was such a unique event that, you know, ha- had such such monumental impacts to the rest of India because it was done in such an open manner. Secondly, I think a, uh, a distressing fact and something that is another mockery of, I guess, the Indian system is that there were actual multiple members of the ruling and the current ruling BJP party who were accused of being part of the destruction and faced zero repercussions. So essentially... The people who are currently in power in India, the BJP party, which already are Hindu radicals themselves, or have members who are Hindu radicals, they essentially were a part of the destruction of a mosque in a public manner in front of everyone, and faced zero repercussions for the destruction of the mosque, and now are within ruling or are within a position of power within the government of India. So on one hand they broke the law and then on the other hand they essentially get rewarded by becoming a member of government where they now have the power to legislate laws which can further discriminate Muslims which by the way they already did. So multiple leaders were actually arrested among the BJP And they went through almost a two-decade battle because the destruction of the mosque happened in the early 90s. I believe in 1992 it happened. And essentially, they were all acquitted after an Indian court found that there was insufficient evidence to prove that the destruction of mosque was planned. So essentially, the Indian court is saying that they couldn't prove that the BJP members actually planned the destruction of the mosque. Now, this ruling was obviously met with a lot of opposition, as many eyewitnesses were actually not interviewed during the entire court, or the court case, and it seemingly ignores that many BJP leaders were actually giving speeches in front of the masjid after they gathered their crowd that was implying to the destruction of the masjid. In addition, there was many reporters who were actually following the story before it happened, Uh, including one in particular who actually warned others. He warned people within the media and he warned, you know, people who, uh, you know, who could have done something that they were planning, the Hindu radicals were planning to destroy the masjid. You know, there was actual footage and, and photos of these Hindu radicals, you know, practicing destroying and pulling down boulders together and working together to destroy things with, you know, pickaxes and shovels, etc., etc. So the idea that they were not planning it, it's very dubious. It's very, you know, it's like, how? How were they not planning it, right? How were they not planning it? Because if there's footage of them actually practicing to destroy stuff, what do, what do you think they were practicing for? What was this? What, what do you think they were practicing for? You know, they show up in front of a mosque and they say, we're going to destroy this mosque. And you're going to say, well, there was no planning towards it. And this was another point that I found that I think is is also an excellent point. And that's that if nobody was found guilty, right, and nobody is believed to be guilty of destroying Babri Mosque, then who destroyed Babri Mosque? Right. If no one is found guilty, right, and you admit that it was a crime or it's a wrong thing to do, then who did it? Did this mosque just fall upon itself? Did it just get destroyed randomly? Did no one have any idea what happened? If nothing wrong happened in terms of the law, right, that's what the court ruled, that there was nothing wrong, then who destroyed the mosque? Did the mosque, like, it's it's such an important question, and yet it feels like there was no answer, right? Because, well, I mean, let's, right, there, there there was really no answer because maybe they just didn't want there to be an answer. 
right? Ever since the BJP party has come into power in India, there's been a lot of court rule rulings like this, right? That have, have been very dubious in nature that seemingly favor, you know, Hindu Vada and Hindu radicals a lot. And the court failing to prosecute the people who destroyed the mosque or answer the question of who destroyed Babri Mosque essentially is a spit in the face of the rule of law, of, you know, equal equality before the law. It's a, it's, it's a terrible thing because essentially a mosque is destroyed in public, like I mentioned, and apparently nobody was guilty, even though there's all kinds of footage showing people destroying the mosque. To make matters worse, because of course there is something to make matters worse, there is actually a BJP member who was a part, or sorry, who is a part and is currently still a part of the BJP party and is actually a member of parliament within India who admitted, and I'm not kidding when I say this, she proudly admitted that she was there during the destruction of Babri Masjid. Her name is, and I'm going to mispronounce this, but I kind of don't care because she's not really that good of a human being, but nonetheless, this is her name. Her name was uh, Pragya Singh Thakur, and she is, uh, I forgot where, uh, I forgot what her constituency was or where she comes from in India, but essentially she is a member of parliament, so she actually has power within the parliament to vote on things. She proudly declared, with honor too, she declared it with honor, that she was there when Babri Masjid was destroyed. Again, no repercussions for her. Nothing. There was no, you know, repercussions. The BJP party did not expel her. In fact, nothing happened. They didn't care. The court didn't care. No one brought any case against her. She publicly declared that she destroyed the mosque, that she was there during its destruction. And apparently, that's not against the law or that's not something wrong to do. Again, it reinforces that it reinforces that Indian Muslims specifically cannot trust the Indian law. How can you say that you are a just country, or how can you even justify your laws if they can't even prosecute someone who literally admitted to the crime? They literally admitted it. Remember I said before that the Indian court essentially ruled that Babri Mosque was destroyed, but they didn't know who destroyed it. Someone just admitted it. Someone just admitted it. So now someone just literally countered the actual point that the Indian court made and they're still not being, you know, prosecuted for that. There's no repercussions. How do you publicly admit to a crime and not face the punishment, right? That's not, that's the sign of, of you know, immoral laws. That's a sign of laws that are not doing good, laws that are not actually bringing justice to its people. And you can only imagine the way you must feel if you're an Indian Muslim right now. Not only was a mosque publicly destroyed, but apparently you can publicly admit to destroying a mosque and not face any repercussions. Imagine what else this says. Could you attack a Muslim and not face repercussions? It, it is something, of, of course, of worry. And unfortunately, there are actual cases of Muslims being attacked in India. And essentially, their perpetrators are seen on camera... You know, sometimes they even record themselves beating Muslims and nothing happens. There's no case against them. There's no, you know, uh, you know, there's no police going against the person. Nothing. They just get away with it and they move on. Thirdly, and this is another, another unfortunate repercussion of the destruction of Babri Mosque. And this is not something that is new to India, but is quite common throughout India's history. But there was an immediate aftershock, which resulted in a serious amount of riots and communal conflicts that led to numerous people being killed. Although the estimations are not exactly clear, they're not exactly clear as to how many people died, which is of course uh, unfortunate, but it's estimated that approximately 2,000 people died during the riots in the aftermath of Babri Masjid's destruction, and they were mainly Muslims who were killed uh, throughout the riots. Uh, and I think that, you know, this is, uh, of course, uh, an unfortunate part, but 
it is going to happen, right? I mean, this this destruction of the mosque was, it is going to be a, you know, a, a big impact on a lot of people within the country. Um, and it, it's, of course, sad to see that happen, uh, but it's not really that surprising. I mean, you had one group that went over to another group's, you know, uh, heritage, or I should say, sorry, religious um, you know, religious um, monument or, you know, mosque, essentially, an important place of religious significance, and they destroyed it publicly, right? Like, this is going to be a response that some people are going to have. There's going to be a lot of anti-Hindu sentiments within many Muslim communities, and within many Hindu communities, there's going to be anti-Muslim sentiments, because either way, they view each other as the enemy now. And of course this was going to happen. The government did nothing to stop it, so this is a natural cause and effect. The cause being the destruction of the mosque, the effect being the riots. And it's almost, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing actually. And I found some articles that went through some first-person accounts of people who were there, mainly Muslims, who watched not only the mosque get destroyed, but also the aftershock and the impact of the destruction of the mosque and mainly the riots and the the communal conflicts that came afterwards. I just want to take some time uh, and go through some of these stories and and I'm just going to read them verbatim because you know it's better to just sort of get the actual I guess wording correct here and to go through all the details uh, because again you know it it is a very um, interesting thing to read and, and something that again is really important to get from the first-person resource. And, and I'm getting this article, or I'm getting, sorry, these uh, um, these stories uh, from an article that I found on NPR, which is a, a news source online that covers a variety of, of uh, issues and whatnot. Um, but they essentially covered, you know, the destruction of the mosque 27 years later. And so they interviewed two people who were, you know, there uh, when the mosque was actually destroyed. And so I'm just going to get into it. The first one is about a man named Saeed Ikhlaq Latifi. Uh, and the second is a woman called Tayyib Unnisa. Uh, and so to begin with first, and uh, I'm just going to paraphrase, or I'm just going to quote this halfway through the article. Uh, but at 80 years old, and sorry, I'm going to start quoting right now. Uh, but at 80 years old, Saeed Ikhlaq Latifi's face is lined with leathery, with a stark white beard but he's still able to scramble up three flights of stairs to his roof to describe what he watched from there in horror nearly 30 years ago. On December 6, 1992, a mob broke through the barricades around the Babri Masjid, a 16th century mosque in Latifi's hometown of Ayodhya in northern India. He points to where the mosque's three massive stone domes used to be. It's now an open, dusty lot as wide as a football field, lined with barbed wire. The mosque was built when India was ruled by the Mughals, who were Muslim emperors. They built thousands of mosques, forts, and other landmarks all over northern India, including the country's most famous, the Taj Mahal, which houses the tomb of the Emperor Shah Jahan's favorite wife. On that terrible day in 1992, Latifi couldn't recognize the men in the mob. They were mostly strangers from out of town, he says. They climbed to the top of the domes and the of the domes and tombs. They were carrying hammers and three-pronged spears from Hindu scripture. They started hacking at the mosque, Latifi recalls. By night, it was destroyed and they set fire to nearby houses. Latifi watched as flames lit up the night sky. Then he and his family fled for their lives. In the riots that followed, thousands of people, mostly Muslims, were killed across India. When Latifi returned to his neighborhood about six weeks after he fled, he found his home, along with an adjacent small mosque and Islamic community center, vandalized and burned. He managed to salvage the small mosque's damaged minarets from the rubble and rebuild. To watch the Babri Mosque's destruction, Latifi says, was shocking. But he also says he wasn't surprised. The next person was a woman by the name of Tayyib Un-Nisa. 
And I quote, her story goes like this. Taib Un Nisa still lives in the same house where her husband was bludgeoned to death near the front gate. Now in her 70s, she actually isn't sure of her exact age, Taib Un Nisa, who goes by one name, sits with her granddaughters and pages through photo albums of her late husband. Her father-in-law had been an imam at the Babri Mosque. Theirs is a prominent Muslim family in Ayodhya. She says that I've wept a lifetime of tears. She blames outsiders and politicians for the violence, not her Hindu neighbors in the religiously mixed city. How else could I keep living here, she says, shaking her head. As Hindu and Muslim riots spread across India that week, some 700 people were killed on the other side of the country in what was then called Bombay, which is now called Mumbai. In response to the killings, Hindus were actually targeted in violence in neighboring Pakistan and Bangladesh, as well as in parts of the Middle East. End quote. So those two stories essentially go over two people who lived through the, you know, the aftermath of Babri Mosque's destruction. The first man, Saeed Ikhlaf Latifi, essentially was a person who had to flee his own home, right? He, he mentions about how, you know, the men who mainly came were strangers. They were people who came from out of town. And I think that's interesting as well. This was not people who were in the actual area. This was people who came from outside of Ayodhya, in that area of Ayodhya, to come and destroy the mosque, which, again, in my opinion, points towards the, you know, the, the idea that this was a premeditated destruction. How could so many foreigners from other parts of India come to Ayodhya by accident? It's not possible. The truth is, of course, they had to have been called there. They had to have been told to come here, we're going to destroy the mosque. How else would they have shown up all at once? And I think what's interesting and what's, I guess, shocking about his you know, his testimony is about how quickly the riots started, right? About how they set fire to basically all the homes and the nearby houses. And what's, again, disappointing is that when he comes back to his neighborhood, like he testifies that the adjacent small mosque to his home and the Islamic Community Center were both vandalized and burned. So not only did these rioters destroy the mosque, but they targeted other mosques nearby and they burned Islamic community centers to hurt the Islamic community and the Muslim community that was in that area. And this other woman, or this other person, sorry, Tayyib Anissa, the woman who watched her husband get killed to death in front of her gate, right? The shock and horror that she says that I've wept a lifetime of tears. Not that you can blame her, of course. Who wouldn't cry if their husband or their loved one was killed right in front of their house? And she doesn't mention that anyone was convicted of killing her husband either. So it's, I guess, fair to assume that her husband was killed and nothing happened as a result. And that's unfortunate, of course, but that's the truth. Both of these testimonies are the truth. These are people who were there and they watched it happen. This is the actual testimony of what the destruction of Babri Mosque was what it led to, and what its impact was on the community that lived there. And I think that reading the actual impacts that these events had on people puts all of this in a whole new context because it gives a, a raw and, and clear idea. It gives a clear idea of what the events of that day were really like. And this is extremely important when, you know, reading about history because, A, it's important to have history from the primary source, which is, you know, the direct source of what happened and not the interpretation of it from someone else, but also because it refutes the rhetoric and the lies that some people have said towards Babri Masjid in that it was just the destruction of Babri Masjid that was the problem. No, it was not just the destruction of Babri Masjid. It was the destruction of Babri Masjid and then the targeting of Muslims that came afterwards. It is the clear-cut Islamophobia that goes behind 
this whole incident. That's the problem. And it cannot be ignored, and it will not be ignored, when you follow the primary sources and the people who actually experienced it happen. And then fourth, and lastly, and I think that this is an important part, and I've sort of referenced this previously in some of the points, but the destruction of Babri Mosque, as well as the lack of justice that came from its destruction, emboldened many Hindu Vada and Hindu extremists within India. Since the fall of Babri Mosque, numerous religious conflicts and riots have occurred in India, including a riot that occurred as recently in 2020 in Delhi, where Muslim neighborhoods, mosques, and businesses were targeted. This is largely because the destruction of a mosque so publicly and in open gave the idea of the righteousness for the destruction of mosques in the future and the targeting of Muslims. Not prosecuting those people properly led to the emboldenedness of the Hindu extremists because they began to feel that they were doing no wrong because there was nothing the law was doing towards them and so they felt that they could get away with everything. A fact that was obviously increased with the election of the BJP who are the Hindu radicals that lead right now in India or who are sympathetic at least to Hindu extremists and Hindu radicals. And this is of course a major issue because now you have a case where these Hindu extremists are often going around and destroying Muslim mosques, attacking Muslims, you know, uh, killing Muslim uh, people, attacking Muslim men and women, and doing it quite publicly with essentially zero repercussion. And, and it's sad to watch because essentially many Muslims have nothing that they can do in response. There's really nothing that many of them can do. There's really nothing that many of them can answer with. Because if the law is not willing to prosecute these criminals, which is what the Hindu extremists are, then what are you going to do? What are you going to do? There's nothing you can really do. It's an unfortunate fact, but it is becoming more and more of a reality for many Muslims within India. Now, fifth, and the final point of this part at least, is that the recent Supreme Court of India decision on the destruction of Babri Masjid essentially, well, it didn't change anything. It essentially said nothing in terms of the actual destruction of Babri Masjid, but what it allowed to do was that it allowed Hindus and the BJP government to build the Ram Mandir, which is, of course, the temple that they wanted this whole time to be built where Babri Masjid was. So yes, you heard that right. On the ruins of Babri Masjid, where the mosque was destroyed, India is now building a temple for Ram that they've always wanted on top of it. So there's no justice for the people who were killed. There was no justice for the destruction of Babri Mosque. And now there's even greater injustice because now they're building a temple on top of the mosque. So ironically, they're doing the very same thing that they accused Muslims of doing. And for some reason, they have no problem with it. It's funny how that works. The Supreme Court of India recently exonerated many people who were accused of destroying the mosque, which I mentioned before, but they also gave the go-ahead to the building of Ram Mandir, and finally, what they allowed to do, and this is seems like a positive, but it's not really a positive, was that they allowed another set of land to be allotted for the construction of Babri Mosque. And so essentially, they are allowing Babri Mosque to be rebuilt, and it'll be rebuilt differently, but they're allowing it to be rebuilt somewhere else. Now, some people are going to look at this and say, well, this is good. The mosque is going to be rebuilt. I disagree. It's not that good. Because what it really is, is that it's an appeasement to Hindu radicals, and then it tries to solve the problem, not by tackling the extremists, not by tackling the people who broke the law, but by giving Muslims to go build their mosque somewhere else and essentially saying to Muslims that they should be grateful because, hey, at least you got something. At least you got something in all of this. Now, I'm not one to say that people should hold grudges forever, but it is, again, very dubious for this thing to even be a reality. 
because you would think that the courts would go after people who broke the law. But they didn't. They didn't. They didn't prosecute even one person who destroyed the mosque. You know, I would be okay with the mosque being built somewhere else if at least they prosecuted someone. Someone should go to jail. Again, asking the question that if Babri Mosque was destroyed, who destroyed it? Who destroyed it? Who destroyed it? If no one, you know, if, if nothing happened, then who destroyed it? It's, it's just a mockery of the law. And then on the other hand, right, this idea that, you know, let's just build the mosque somewhere else, it negates the whole point. Muslims were targeted. This was an Islamophobic attack against Indian Muslims. That's the point. That's what you should have corrected, not just build the mosque somewhere else. You don't think there's other mosques that Muslims can go to? In probably the city of Ayodhya, there's probably hundreds of mosques that Muslims can go to. That wasn't the point. The point was that this mosque was destroyed. Criminally, it was destroyed. It broke the law for them to destroy it. That's the point. Not build a mosque somewhere else. That negates the whole point of what was wrong in the first place. Now, I want to move on you know, to a, a next point here. And it, it's a point that really focuses on not the negatives here, but one essential positive. And again, I know that sounds wrong, and I said that I'd explain this, but there's one essential positive that came about from the actual destruction of Babri Mosque. Now, this one essential positive that comes it comes through a story that I actually found a while ago, but was one that I was very interested to learn about. And I think you'll be interested to learn about as well, because again, it is, it is a very, very good positive, the actual destruction of the mosque. And I found it and I found, well, you know, I found an article that actually goes into, uh, you know, more detail about it. And to first, I guess, go into the story, uh, because it is a story, I'll just basically quote the article, um, you know, verbatim, because it's the best way to kind of convey what happens. And as I go through it, you know, I'll go through uh, some things about, uh, you know, people and whatnot, or, or at least it'll focus on one person in particular. Um, and it's a very interesting story that, again, you know, is something where it's almost remarkable that it happened, but it did. And it really brings sort of a... I guess, I don't know, a, a, a remembering of, you know, that even in the bad, a good can happen. And also, you know, the, the faith in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the importance of that. So without further ado, here it goes. You know, here's the, uh, the story, and I quote, Consumed by hate against Muslims, Balbir Singh was part of the Hindu fanatic mob that demolished the 16th century Babri Mosque in the Indian city of Ayodhya on December 6, 1992. He was the first person to reach on the top of the central dome, brandishing a hammer in his hand. After pulling down the mosque, he even took away a brick to keep as a souvenir to placate his rancor and scorn against Muslims. Soon after the demolition, Balbir, along with another Kar Sivak, which were Hindu volunteers who demolished the mosque, Yogindir Pal, who was one of his friends, went into a deep introspection. Six months later, the pair converted to Islam. 28 years later, Singh re-Christianed as Muhammad Amir, so the man, Balbir Singh, who destroyed the mosque, converted to Islam and took the name Muhammad Amir, has already built 90 mosques. He has vowed to build 100 mosques to atone his participation in the demolition. Balbir Singh, who again now goes by Amir, said that 28 years ago, he was consumed by hate when he enthusiastically joined the, to demolish the mosque. I had pledged to build the temple in the name of Lord Ram at the site of Babri Mosque. After realizing his blunder, I pledged to wash my sins by constructing 100 mosques. 
inspired by the RSS, who were a Hindu, who are the Hindu radical group or one of Hindu radical groups. Uh, he essentially uh, was a member of the Shiv Sena, who is a political outfit of the Hindu radicals. Recalling his journey, Singh said that he went into self-examination soon after the demolition. I came into contact with Molana Kalim Siddiqui through Yogendira Pal, who was his friend who also converted to Islam and who also destroyed the mosque. His behavior, in reference to Molana uh, Kalim Siddiqui, and way of understanding led me to soul-searching, and on June 1st, 1993, I embraced Islam. So on June 1st, 1993, that's about a year after the destruction of the mosque, which happened on December 6th, 1992. Siddiqui is an Indian cleric who runs an Islamic teaching center in the district of Uttar, in the, sorry, in the state of Uttar Pradesh. Singh, who has now migrated to the deep south in Hyderabad, he claims that over the past 28 years, he has already built or repaired 90 mosques all over India. And some background to him, he was born to a Hindu Rajput upper caste family. His father was a school teacher who was inspired by the philosophy of India's freedom icon Mahatma Gandhi, known for his theory of non-violence. Singh said that he was in the first batch of volunteers who reached the city of Ayodhya, where Babri Mosque was located. My group reached there on December 1st, and I was the first one who climbed atop the central dome of the mosque using tools to bring it down, he narrated. Our group was the first who charged towards the mosque using hammers and other tools to tear the dome down. After accomplishing the task, we were accorded a hero's welcome when we returned home. But when Singh returned to his home, his family's reaction shocked him. They condemned me, he said. All the euphoria evaporated. I realized that I had done wrong. I had taken law in my own hands and violated the constitution of India, he added. I went into introspection. People thought I had lost mental balance. Finally, I decided to embrace Islam to give me peace of mind. Immediately, I started feeling better. Today, Amir is married to a Muslim woman and runs a school to spread Islamic teachings to a wide audience in the city of Hyderabad. He has built 90, call it 90 mosques so far, or repaired 90 mosques, all across India with his colleague Yogendera Pal. Singh, or Muhammad Amir, said that he is ready to face the punishment for his involvement in the demolition of the Babri Mosque. And when asked about the Indian Supreme Court verdict in the Babri Mosque case, he said that Muslims should now move forward and work towards improving their relationship with Hindu brothers. He said, Allah is with us. We should only look to him for our needs. End of the article. I think that this is a remarkable story of Balbir Singh, a.k.a. Muhammad Amir. He's a man who was a former Hindu radical who helped not only in destroying the mosque, but was proud of destroying the mosque. And now, after so many years, after one year in particular, he converts to Islam. He converted to the very religion that he used to hate a year ago. And it's incredible, isn't it? A man who hates Islam, who despises the religion, then converts the religion. It's incredible to think about, right? But really only in Islam do you hear these sort of stories. These stories of people who used to hate the religion, but when they learn about the religion, they embrace the religion. But on the other hand, it's amazing to read for about a man who was you know, as radical as you could get, having that sense of introspection, right? That sense of reflection to say, what I did was wrong. And as he's atoning for his sins, he converts to the very religion that he hated the most. And then on top of that, he vows to build, or repair at least, 90 to 100 mosques. And he's allegedly done 90 mosques. He, spelt, he spent his whole life, his whole life he's been doing this now, 
you know, about 28 years, I think it was, he's been spending his life doing this. He's married to a Muslim woman now, and he teaches Islam to others in Hyderabad. It's kind of incredible to read about. It's very incredible to read about. And this is what I meant when I said that this is the one positive that came about the destruction of Babri Mosque. Babri Mosque was destroyed. 90 mosques were built. 90 of them. That's the thing that I think is so important about Babri Mosque. Because, yes, Babri Mosque was destroyed. But it wasn't the end of all mosques. It, it, other mosques are built and other mosques are being built. And I think that that's an important part in all of this. That it's not just the destruction of Babri Mosque again that was the problem. It was the Islamophobia that went behind it. But then even on top of that, reading about Muhammad Amir's story is, is remarkable. Because it almost makes me think, is, are there others within the Hindu radicals where if they just got to know Islam, they'd actually like it? But then on the other hand, it's amazing to read the story of this man who destroyed a mosque and had such, you know, an, of an impact on him psychologically and spiritually that he has spent his whole life trying to atone his sin. His whole life he spent just trying to do right to this one thing he did, this one major bad thing he's been spending his whole life. God knows how much money he spent. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows most about how much money he may have spent just trying to repair and build mosques and teach people about Islam as well. It's incredible to think about and to read because it's not something you would see every day. It's not something you would hear about every day and it's definitely not something you hear about all the time when it comes to Babri Mosque. But it is something that led to the positive of Babri Mosque. Yes, there are a lot of negatives and there still are a lot of negatives you know, towards uh, what happened and, and, you know, within Muslims for India. But this is one actual positive and one great positive that came from the destruction of Babri Mosque. And it also is, in a way, you know, a remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the guidance that this man received, even though he was a quote-unquote enemy of Islam. And you know what it brings me? It sort of reminds me of the story of some of the companions of the Prophet Muhammad who themselves hated Islam, but eventually converted and accepted it and became some of its most important followers. It's kind of incredible about how this continuously happens in Islam. And it's something of reflection, I think, about our religion that we need to have. There may be bad things that can happen, I guess, but somehow the good always happens in the end. Now, with that, I want to conclude today's episode right here. Um, I think we have talked a lot about Babri Masjid, and I hope that you guys enjoyed this episode about the aftermath and the shocks that were felt because of Babri Masjid's destruction, but as well as the story of Muhammad Amir, who I again think had a fantastic story uh, and his sort of redemption after his help in destroying Babri Masjid. Um, you know, I, I really enjoyed making this episode and I enjoyed the previous episode as well um, because, you know, both things were just so important because there are so many details that I think needed to go over. Uh, and, you know, again, like I mentioned in, in the previous episode, this is something that I'm going to try more is to sort of reduce maybe the amount of episodes that I release, but focus more on specific topics so I can go more into detail. Because if I did my previous episode format, I definitely would not have been able to go over so many of the things that I went over uh, in today's episode. So again, I hope you guys did enjoy today's episode. Um, I hope that it was this episode and the previous episode, of course, were informational. Um, I've not gone over everything with Bobby Mosk. In fact, I am willing to bet that there's a lot of things that I haven't talked about that maybe, you know, in the future or in a future episode, it might be something that I might focus on. But of course, I mean, that's in the future. I'll worry about that later. For now, again, I hope you guys did enjoy today's episode.
So if you guys could, uh, you know, please remember to leave a five-star review uh, at whatever podcast host you're listening to or, you know, like this episode as well as like the podcast. Um, you know, I hopefully, if, if you guys can give good reviews, it allows me to continue making episodes uh, and also it, get, it gets more attention to the podcast, which again will also let me get more uh, episodes and focus more on this podcast as well. Um, And in addition, if you guys could also uh, subscribe to the podcast, um, remember to do that so that you can get uh, up to date on my new episodes that are released, as well as turn on your notifications uh, so that you can get notified when I do release a new podcast episode. Uh, And lastly, uh, if you guys could as well share this with others, share it on social media as well. It's an excellent way to get others to be informed as well. And if you know anyone who'd be interested in this topic as well, I'm sure they'd enjoy it if you shared this episode or any other episodes that I've covered because I have covered a wide variety of topics with them as well. And lastly, if you guys could also follow me and remember to follow me on social media. I have accounts on both Instagram and on Twitter. Uh, you can just follow me at Mib Podcast. That's M-I-Y-B Podcasts. The M-I-Y-B and the P in Podcast is all capital. Uh, so please go find me on Instagram and on Twitter. I post, uh, you know, every now, every now and then. Um, I try to post as frequently as I can. Uh, But, you know, I I do work full time, so uh, sometimes it is difficult to keep on top of everything. Uh, But hopefully, you know, I am able to, you know, post as regularly as possible uh, to make sure that, you know, I engage with you guys on social media. Uh, But in addition, you know, it'd be great if you guys did follow me on social media because I'd love to hear if you guys have any feedback or information as to maybe, you know, what I should focus on in future episodes or just, you know, what you thought of uh, the episode or what you thought of the podcast as well. I'd love to hear what you guys have to say uh, and what your thoughts or experiences were. And finally, with that being said, as always, inshallah and alafis, we'll meet again. (laughs)